Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, a podcast for mamas created by mamas. We discuss ancestral food, cooking, feeding our families, and holistic living with the everyday modern mom. We are Corey and Christine, two mamas on a mission to nourish our families holistically while keeping it real in today's crazy world. Follow us on this adventure and enjoy the stories and information we share. Today's episode is sponsored by the Nurtured Foundations online course. The Nurtured Foundations course is a podcast style course to teach parents how to start solids with their baby. Are you a parent with a child from zero to 24 months? Well, then this online course is for you. This is a comprehensive course that empowers parents to start solid foods in a confident and safe way and raise adventurous and healthy eaters from the start. We cover topics such as when to start solids, the most nutrient-dense foods to feed your babies, recipes, troubleshooting, how to prevent picky eating, and so much more. If you want information on this course, go to nourishthelittles.com and click on the link, Nurtured Foundations Online Course. You can also find a link to the Nurtured Foundations Online Course on my Instagram bio. Click on the link and look for Nurtured Foundations Online Course. Welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. This is Christine from Nourish the Littles, and I'm joined by my co-host, Corey, from For Nutrient Sake. And we want to thank you guys for taking the time to listen today. And actually, we're wondering, do we have any listeners out there interested in Asian cooking? Because if so, this episode is for you. Today, we're going to be talking to Sophie Eng, who is a first-generation Vietnamese-American and first-generation regenerative farmer. Sophia left a successful career in growth marketing in Silicon Valley to start a five-acre permaculture farm in the Appalachian region of eastern Tennessee. She is also a Weston A. Price chapter leader and the founder of the website Sprinkle with Soil and author of the Nourishing Asian Kitchen Cookbook. Her practical approach to whole foods cooking and gardening is inspired by the complexities of raising two children and caring for her elderly parents with unique medical needs. Welcome, Sophia, to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Hey, everyone. (laughs) Um, So I'm really excited that you're here. I, my husband, my husband's favorite food is all Asian foods, and I kind of suck at making them. So, so as soon as your book was like on pre-order, I was like, yes, I need this one. <laughs> and, and I'm really glad that we're going to have this conversation because maybe we'll come away with some, some new tips or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I hear that a lot. I've heard that a lot. People will message me and say the same thing. Like my husband loves Asian food and I don't know where to get started. So I'm so excited. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> I mean, I love it too, but he, it's like his absolute favorite thing. Um, and it's, to me, it just feels really complicated. I'm sure it doesn't, if if it's what you're used to cooking, you know, but like to me as a very American cook, it's, it's, it's intimidating. Um, 
So yeah, yeah I'm really excited. Super foreign to me. Right. Very, very foreign. Um, yeah. And I wish I did more Asian cooking because I also love eating Asian food. Mm. Uh, but so I'm extremely excited for your book. And I didn't, I didn't even, I didn't really know about it. So I'm going to jump on and order it ASAP now. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. A lot of the Asian flavors that everyone seems to love is, you know, I'm sure you've heard of umami, which is that savory taste bud, you know, besides your, your sweet and your salty and your, you know, your other taste buds. And, and it's kind of that savory um, sense that everybody seems to like in most Asian cuisine. Yeah, it's kind of, it, it kind of fills out your taste, but like, it's a very full sort of flavor. Yeah. Does that make any sense? It does. Full flavor. <laughs> it does. Corey, you told me earlier it was deep. Deep. Or yeah. It was, it was a deep flavor. Yeah. Deep. yeah. And a, a lot of our modern Asian cuisine, in order to kind of mimic that umami flavor, they use a lot of MSG. And that's yeah. just something that, you know, I'm sure you'd appreciate being modern ancestral moms if, you know, I believe that if it isn't something that existed a hundred years ago, then we really shouldn't be cooking with it. And if it's processed in a, in a lab, we shouldn't. And I know that there are natural um, versions of glutamate, but I think ultimately overall, if we can keep it where we're cooking, you know, we're simmering our broths for 12 to 14 hours and still bringing out that umami flavor without having to use any processed ingredients, that's just better for our bodies and for our family. Okay. So, so since you just mentioned that, what is a way that we can naturally get those, like, what is the traditional way of getting those, that sort of MSG flavor, that, that umami, that deep full flavor? Is it mostly just with broth or is it, what are the other options? Mostly with broth. And that's when you cook your bones for a certain amount of time um, and it really releases it out. Um, But the other way is fermentation, like for soy sauce, for example, right? So it goes through a traditionally uh, fermented stage where it brings out and breaks out the, uh, the umami flavoring. So you don't have to use MSG. And I think the argument right now um, from the narrative is if you use MSG, then you it's actually a good thing because you don't have to use as much salt because salt apparently oh. is bad. But, uh, you know, and so that's the narrative that we're, you know, I this cookbook is about going back to traditions. Salt is not bad for you. It is good for you. It is necessary. And MSG, if it's processed, let's not include it. And I know it's not going to be a popular opinion amongst um, the demographic, but it's something that I think a lot of people, as we start looking into, you know, ancestral eating, it's it, they're becoming aware of it. And I've also heard from a lot of people who have written and said, our family loves Asian food, but we haven't been able to eat Asian food at restaurants for years because of the reactions we have. And mm-hmm. what started with my mom as well, when we were, before we started eating this way, which is before my daughter was born um, 12 years ago, she would have heart palpitations. You know, I would get thirsty. My husband would itch. <laughs> like it's all sorts of, and it manifests in a number of different side effects. But since we've cut it out, we've had none of these problems. Wow. 
I was going to ask about the restaurants because do you do you find that it's pretty ubiquitous through all Asian restaurants? It's just something that they use in all of their dishes or will some cuisines have less MSG than others? I'm thinking off the top of my head, would sushi have MSG? Sushi, sushi may not, but if it's in a broth like miso soup, it might. Um, you know, there's even like fish sauce, for example. So a lot of Asian cultures use fish sauce. And if you look closely, they'll add MSG in there. There's high fructose corn syrup. You know, you just have to know how to source it. And that's what I talk about in the cookbook. Wow. Yeah. That's such a bummer. And the, the hard part is if, because I've done this a few times where I go to an Asian restaurant and I try to ask them and communicate with them, do you put any MSG? And I've gotten the, a wide range of responses. I'm not even sure that the language barrier is helping here, obviously. And they're, they're even understanding what I'm asking. And yeah. so often, I mean, I want to say I've done this maybe three or four times and I walk out so disappointed. I'm, I'm cause yeah. actually if we ever go into our question, I have a deep craving for pho. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, great. I okay. love to hear that. So let's let's start. So we usually start um, each episode with a question that kind of has to do with the conversation that we're going to be having. Um, and then we'll all answer it. We'll kind of go round table. And this is a pretty easy one. So we should just be able to kind of shoot it off. But um, so our question for today, since we're talking about Asian cuisine and Asian cooking, um, is what is your favorite Asian dish? And this is I mean, this is like why you have a huge amount of options here. <laughs> All right, Christine. I'll just go first. Pho, I would say. And am I saying it correctly? It's pho. Pho. Yeah. yeah okay. Okay. For, for such a short word, for such a short word, it feels very difficult to pronunciate. <laughs> it, yeah. it, is, it is. There's like several intonations in it. <laughs> I love pho, for sure. Yeah. I don't know that I have a favorite. Asian dish. Yeah, it was. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna actually say that Indian food might be my favorite, but but that's Asia, right? Isn't it? <laughs> I included it as I know it's a controversial topic, but I do have one delicious Indian recipe that we that I put in there. I mean, I'm not gonna say that I don't like other Asian cuisines as well because I do, but. A good butter chicken is really probably my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> I have a, yeah, it's a, it's a butter lamb recipe. That's like everybody in the family loves. <laughs> and that's, is that in your cookbook? It is. Oh, Jane, I can't wait for November. Yeah. When is it coming? <laughs> it's November, right? It's December 8th. December. Oh. In time right. for Christmas. Right. <laughs> that was, yeah, obviously strategic. All right. Okay. Sophia, All right. Which yours? one is your favorite? This is a trick question because I was, as I was writing the book and you know how like every recipe has a little description in the, in the beginning that has our story. I think the edits came back and they said, you've already said this was your favorite. <laughs> you already said this was your favorite. <laughs> I realized because I'm like. I guess there's there's sentimental food is is you know is memories happy memories for me and that's how these recipes made it into the book, but the cover of the book is my absolute favorite dish and the way that I love to eat it and it's the oxtail pho 
as well. <laughs> and it's a staple in our family. Um, but between the oxtail one, we'll, we'll rotate between some sort of beef or, or chicken pho. Yeah. Do you like scoop out the marrow in the oxtail for it or is it just simmered and you're kind of just getting the marrow? From- it's simmered and cooked in there. Yeah. Cause the, okay. the marrow it's, it's all, it's all in there. Nice. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Um, all right. So we've already mentioned, you know, your book, would you give us the title again yeah. and then tell us um, why you decided to write it? So the cookbook is called The Nourishing Asian Kitchen Cookbook, and I decided to write this 12 years ago when my daughter was born, um, and she actually was uh, six months old, and when I was trying to figure out how to make applesauce for her, I several of these baby cookbooks said to source organic apples, and I thought, okay, so that's fine. I'll buy a couple of organic apples to make her applesauce. But when do we switch her over to like our food or are we doing it wrong? And so since that, um, since that experience, you know, I started looking into preservatives and the additives that were in our food, GMO, everything. And one day I went into the kitchen. Um, My parents live with us. We take care of them. I took out one of those large black garbage bags and I went down the line. I opened up the refrigerator, went down the line and with every sauce and marinade, every Asian sauce and marinade, I turned it around and there was sure enough, some sort of preservative, some sort of additive. And I just dropped it into the bag and my mom came out running and she was like, what are you doing? What are we going to eat? Like, how am I going to cook? And I told her, I don't know, (laughs) but we'll figure it out. And so it's been 12 years in the kitchen with my mom and, you know, I've worked remote, um, we homeschool. So it's, you know, I take care of my mom and dad and I believe that food is medicine and I've helped heal them with a lot of their health, their ailments. So throughout the years, we've been applying nourishing traditions, um, the principles to our Asian recipes and, when my parents, when we moved out to the Appalachia Mountains last August, um, my parents' health, like my dad's health in particular, started declining rather rapidly. And so I took, I, I decided to take a couple of months off of work. And my husband encouraged me to write the book. He said, why don't you spend some time with mom and dad? You've always wanted to write this book. By the way, all the dishes in that cookbook are bowls and plates that I have thrifted over the last 10 years and we've brought them over like it is insane and we we actually had a team out in Hollywood shoot all of the photos and I shipped all those boxes back to California (laughs) just so that they can make it in the cookbook because it meant so much like it's it's been a dream of mine for a really really long time and I didn't think that it was going to be a, a published cookbook I honestly when I when we, when I took some time off last year, it was just supposed to be our family project. Like it was something I wanted to do with my parents and for my kids. But I, I hadn't realized that, you know, this last year was the final year that I could have worked on it with my parents as my dad in the last couple of months, he's really taken a dive and now requires additional assistance. And there's no way I could have gotten this book done now. Oh, wow. I'm so sorry to hear about your dad, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's bittersweet, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. You're, you will never 
forget these memories and it's so special. It really is. Wow. (laughs) I feel like I'm getting emotional just listening to this story. (sighs) Um, Yeah. I mean, how cool though, that you have your parents to, to, you know, learn from with this because your parents are, are immigrants, right? They, they came over. Yeah. Could you give us a little bit of that background? They yeah. Came- yeah. My parents are immigrants from Vietnam. They fled Saigon in April 30th, oh, April 29th of 1975. And, you know, they came to California, Camp Pendleton, and landed in Silicon Valley. So they've been there their entire lives. I was born and raised in Silicon Valley, right in, you know, the Bay Area, San Jose. And, you know, my mom, she didn't have, we didn't have much. I didn't grow up with much. She worked, oftentimes she worked two jobs. And the only time that I'd see her at home was when she was in the kitchen cooking or she'd have to go run to the grocery store. So as a little girl, I was always in the kitchen with her to spend some time with her as I never saw her much during the day. Or I'd hop in the car and she'd take me grocery shopping and she'd show me how to pick the right vegetables, the right fruit. And she would always say, you know, everyone's paying the same price per pound, but you need to know which one is actually a good one to buy out of the entire, you know, bundle of apples. You need to be able to pick which one is good. And so I learned from a very, very young age with her, you know, and, and, you know, 40 years now being with her, I mean, I've obviously went to college, came back and when they got older, but they've been living with us for the last at least 12 years. Um, you know, she's, (laughs) it's a, I don't know if you've ever cooked with an Asian mom, uh, in the kitchen. Yeah. It's not, (laughs) I haven't, but now I'm very interested. (laughs) No side story. I actually have, um, with an Asian grandmother. I, so I used to live in New Jersey. Yeah. This is another backstory of my life, but I used to live in New Jersey with an Asian friend and I lived at their house. And she lived with her mother and her grandmother. (laughs) And one time I was, this was when I was just starting to realize that food had, food came with stories and there, it was so much deeper than just, uh, being what food that we eat or whatever. And I asked her to teach me how to make scallion pancakes. And so my friend would translate what her grandmother was saying to me, and they basically taught me how to make scallion pancakes. I th- This just triggered this memory. It was tucked oh. away. I can't believe I hadn't thought about it. <laughs> I love it. And, and that's, anyway. this, this entire experience with writing this cookbook has been completely emotional because there's so much story around our food. And those scallion pancakes, my husband has stories around that because it's a, I think it's a Taiwanese or a Chinese tradition to have. What did I say she was? She's from Taiwan. Taiwan. Yes. It's a Taiwanese kind of yeah. tradition that, that every Taiwanese grandma makes. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, so I've spent years with her and, and scallion in particular has been very traumatizing over the last years because there's a million ways to slice it. You could chop it and it goes in this certain dish or you need to slice it thin or you need to chop it thicker or you only use the greens or you only use the whites. And it's particular for every dish. And it's very complex because, you know, as part of our culture, 
the Asian culture, we cook with a lot of intention, meaning even down to like the flavors and the textures, we take that into consideration. Like japchae is a Korean dish. It's got the, the soft um, sweet potato noodles and chewy, delicious. When you go to a Korean restaurant, they often serve it as a side. But, you know, in there, there's like wood ear mushrooms. That's kind of you know, it's got that squishy texture, but it's also got the crunchiness of the, you know, either a red or an orange bell pepper, you know, and there's, you know, all sorts of like the, 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 the onions, the sweetness of the onions, and it's chopped a certain way. So a lot of the intricacies of the Asian dishes, you know, we, we look into ingredients as well. There's, it's very, it's very colorful and uh, it's like an art, like almost like sushi, right? It's it's a food art. See, this is probably why I'm not good at it because I just don't know any of that. You know, like I have absolutely no background in Asian cuisine at all. Um, and so then it like that would never cross my mind to like pay attention to a recipe so direct, you know, because I'm one of those people that doesn't really follow recipes. Right. Um, <laughs> I don't either. Which is why I had to write a cookbook. I know, but like, if you have that kind of like, you know, it's like ingrained in you, sort of, you know, like you know how the flavors are supposed to come out. I think it probably is easier if it's like a you grew up with it. I don't know, maybe not. Maybe like <laughs> that's my feeling, like an intuition of how the flavors yeah. are supposed to come out. Yeah. 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 But it's all in there. All our recipes are in there. So if you follow them, I wrote it. So it's very simple with ingredients that you'll have at home, most likely already have. Is it mostly Vietnamese recipes or do you co- do you cover kind of a wide range of Asian recipes? I mean, Asia is a giant continent. I, no, so. I know. I know. That's why. <laughs> like this could be. <laughs> this is. I, I mean, I'm gesturing and you can't, nobody can see it, but like enormous. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to need three more volumes, right? Exactly. It's <laughs> Julia Child style. Julia Child style. Seven hundred pages. <laughs> it is. Yeah, like I, you know, I had to limit it to. It's a little. It still went over a hundred recipes in the cookbook, but it is. It is most likely going to be a volume one. It's all of our family's traditional recipes from all different Asian cultures. But in this book, it's mostly Vietnamese. It's mostly our stories that are in there. Um, but my husband's. Chinese. I'm so I've got part French in me, and there's also the French influence from Vietnamese cuisine, which is why I think it's a beautiful blend. Um, my husband's Chinese, so we have some of those recipes in there. We love to eat Korean. We're from California. We're foodies from California, so we had access to all of this Asian food, and a lot of it is, you know, inspired by it. But yeah, so Vietnamese, Chinese, Korean, Thai, Indian, and even some modern Asian recipes that our kids loved and we wanted to include them in there. So bubble tea is in there as well. Oh, I was oh. like, what is a modern Asian recipe? I don't know. Yeah, bubble tea. Oh, man. Yeah, I love bubble tea. And it's clean. I love it. But it's so sad when when I learned what was in it. It was exactly. Really yeah. Day. Wait, so do you have a recipe for making the bubbles? Yes. Yes. <gasps> no way. Yeah. I know oh, my kids are going to be so excited. Seriously, how are we going to wait until December? <laughs> I'm really excited. This is all like, yeah, our, I wrote it for the kids. 
I wrote it for our girls because I wanted all of grandma's recipes, all of our family recipes. If grandma's not around and you lose the stories, I didn't want to lose the stories and the traditions and, and, but then also, you know, we, we grew up in the Bay area. Boba guys is huge, right? And they're more clean U S made Boba, but it's still not as clean as if you were to make it at home and you can, and it tastes just as good and it's more enjoyable because you know, it's clean. And you made it and it's, you get all of those, you know, getting to be with your kids and stuff in the kitchen. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Wow. Okay. So actually, let me ask you this. What is, if you, what is your favorite, you said what your favorite recipe is, but what is your kid's favorite recipe from your book? Ooh, I I know I'm throwing this at you out of the blue. That's a good one. I think... I think it's going to be in the dessert section. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> but they love, I know it's just, it's, it's overstated, but um, fuzz something that I often have on the stove most days of the week, because it's always either got a low simmer going. If I'm busy working and, you know, and it's the in and out mom and dad are in and out they still have food on the stove that they can serve themselves so they can have the broth like sometimes when i'm super busy i'll just have like some broth some cilantro onions and scallion and it's a full meal and i'm 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 nourished um and they've said they you'll hear them they'll they'll say um mommy can we have this we can have this every day it's so good but the running joke is they'll they'll say everything is their favorite and <laughs> It's kind of, I know it's, we're foodies where we love our food so much that we have our own farm and we raise our own animals and we grow our own vegetables because we really love good food. Yeah. My, so I have made pho a few times. I'm not sure how authentic it is. I try my best, but I do the the one where you slice the meat very thin and then you let it cook in the broth. Yeah. And my kids ask for that a lot. They're obsessed with it, mostly because they're savages at the table and then they will play with the meat and pretend they're animals eating it. But like they love putting the raw meat in the broth, cooking it, and then just like dangling it over their mouth and being like, oh, I'm a seal. And I'm, <laughs> but I know. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> But they still ask me for this soup. And actually, they just asked me for it recently. And for me, it's like, Oof, okay, I got I to gotta really mentally prepare myself for this, okay? So <laughs> because as, you know, Corey and I have said, it, it feels so foreign to me that I, I have to really think about, okay, how am I going to make this? <laughs> yeah, it's all in there. It's all in there, including the, that we call that titai, um, which is the, it's typically an eye round and it's sliced very thinly and it's lean, but it's so delicious once it's cooked in the broth. I'm glad. I, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to get the kids together for dinner. Um, I'd love no, to no, see. no. You might not want my my kids' influence on yours. It's not a good idea. <laughs> my kids love playing with your kids. I'm sure we're all of our kids could play together and they'd all be very happy. Totally. <laughs> Pretending to be seals. Well, actually, man, I wish I had known um, about your farm. Cause we were in Tennessee last, I know that you're at the conference, but like that, that would have been, I would have loved to see it actually. Well, do you want to tell us a little bit about your farm? Yeah. So we started 
farming in back in California in 2019. We started in a quarter acre. And then when the pandemic hit, uh, or when 2020 hit, we bought some land up in northern uh, Sacramento area in a town called Lincoln. We bought six acres there, started farming. Like it was, you know, the end of the world kind of farming. And I realized it was the end of my world, um, the world that I grew up in and really believing, you know, everything that was taught. So um, when we had an opportunity, because I, my husband and I, we do real estate and I do lending. And so in 2022, I realized, you know, hey, this is all great. But if we're ever going to think about leaving California, we should be leaving now before interest rates go up. So we looked in, we looked in Texas, Oklahoma, and Tennessee, and, um, you know, really fell in love with the community here uh, in Tennessee. And there was within 48 hours, we were in contract for a small five acre property. My husband actually didn't get to see it because at the time that I went to go view this property, he was interviewing the sheriff. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, we, we, we just needed to make sure <laughs> everything was good. But um, yeah, That's there was an interesting. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? what was he asking the sheriff? Are we allowed to ask that question? <laughs> <laughs> He was just asking, you know, what the things that had transpired in California um, in 2021, 2022, we just wanted to be sure, you know, it, it really comes down to a county level, not so much a federal level. Yeah. And yeah. so with that being said, we really need to, we needed to know where this sheriff stood with everything. That's really and, smart. <laughs> well, it's a bit, it was a big move because, you know, we lost a lot of our friends. We lost a lot of family during that time. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's bittersweet again, because we, you know, if we had, we not done that, our story would not have been as, you know, as, as well-written as it, as it is now um, enough to make a book apparently because Chelsea Green loved the story so much, but, you know, in retrospect, it really did come from a lot of loss. And so I, you know, this is kind of redemptive in a way, but our farm here is five acres and we just wanted a place to land. So, you know, we brought all of our animals over. We had sheep, we had goats, we had two LGDs. Um, our little one wanted us to bring her ducks and her chickens. So we trekked that five days cross country. Oh my goodness. Truck. Yeah. So we brought all the animals over. And when we got here, you know, we wanted it to be an easy transition for the for the children because it is a, it was a big move and it was a kind of an abrupt move because it was back in January and I knew that interest rates were going to go up. So we got out here and locked in at a good rate in March. But if we were to wait till now, oh, we'd pay, we'd be paying the same like because of you know the small piece of the cost of the home, uh, we'd be paying the same price and so we'd be stuck. In California, yeah. which is not a bad thing, you know, for for anybody who's living in California. But but what we're what we're wanting to do, you know, we didn't we didn't want it to be too late for us. I get so many requests from Californians coming <laughs> to Texas. Yeah, and a lot of us Texans sometimes get a little upset. We're like, why do you guys keep coming down here? Don't change our state, okay? Yeah. No, we, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. We know a lot of people act like that when we moved down too. Everybody that we met, everybody that knew where we were coming from assumed that we were big DC people and um, we're moving down to, you know, Southern Georgia to like bring our DC to Southern Georgia. And we're like, no, 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 <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about us. <laughs> yeah. I literally have to tell people we're refugees. Don't worry. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we, we actually, I mean, we did something similar. Um, we moved from Chicago and mm-hmm. we actually did move in the middle of the pandemic uh, in April of 2020. And we thought that we were just going to stay in Texas for two weeks. And then yeah. it ended up being a month and then two months and then three months. And then my husband was like, we're getting rid of your pla- of our place in Chicago. And we, I, I went back once. Yeah. And that was it. It was, it was shocking. Like you said, it's, it, it was a, it's a shock. It was a big shock. Yeah. Yeah. But I think there's, a, you know, there's so many people during that time and even now that are making the big move. And, you know, it's like a, it's a parade. Like we have new friends here that had been RVing for three years and um, <laughs> around the country to learn from other farms and to just find the right community. And they decided to join us here. So it's a lot of people moving to find community. Yeah. I think that's actually one of the redeeming things that came out of that whole 2020 pandemic thing is that so many people were kind of forced to figure things out, you know, like they were forced to realize that they, you know, actually really love being around their children and want them to be homeschooled or, (laughs) um, you know, or that they realize that they, you know, don't want to be beholden to the um, food system or, you know, just all these things. They didn't like their community or they didn't like even just their government where they were, (laughs) their local government. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of hurt obviously came out of that time, but a lot of good did too. I think it all comes down to finding people with the same values and the values that we thought that might have been important prior to 2020, at least for our family, we realized that they might have not been, they were surface level. We wanted, we wanted deeper. Mm. Yeah, that's true for sure. Well, yeah. We digressed a little bit, but I kind of want to bring it back to the cookbook because Corey and I still had a few other questions that we wanted to ask you about the cookbook specifically, which I'll ask mine and then Corey, you can ask yours. But I wanted to know if the cookbook had any organ meat recipes in it out of curiosity. Yes. I have reserved an entire chapter dedicated to organ meat or offals. And it was something that I kind of had to push back uh, against the publisher because they were saying, well, you know, if it's beef liver, it should go in beef. If it's, you know, chicken feet, it should go in chicken. But, you know, it was one of the ways that we grew up traditionally, or I grew up traditionally, we ate all that stuff. I ate, you know, we, we simmered our chicken necks and we ate the chicken feet and we ate the livers. And that was just because out of, you know, an economical reasons. Um, but I grew up, you know, when I was a little kid, I was, my mom would buy free range chicken from the local farmer and I butchered and processed them as a child. So it's almost a redeeming um, factor to be able to say no. And I think offals or, you know, organ meats is starting to become more mainstream now. I'm seeing chicken livers and chicken feet at Whole Foods. And so a lot of people 
have said, you know, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to cook it. I don't know how to cook it so that my my children and my family will eat it. And so that's why I dedicated a whole chapter specifically for offals. That's great. (laughs) I actually learned how to eat chicken feet for the first time when I went to Awfully Good Cooking's house. She had them just cooking on the stove and they were all there. And they were in a ginger honey sauce. Oh my gosh, they were really good. Yeah. And I sat like a little kid, just like eyes popping, ogling at her like, what? (laughs) You're eating these? (laughs) How are you eating these? And then I just grabbed it and tried it and was like, oh, this is delicious. Why have I never tried this before? So wait, how do you, you just eat it like, like a chicken wing? That's how I ate it. I don't know. Maybe you have a better way, Sophia. Yeah. But. I mean, you kind of just nibble at it and then yeah. you... Because there's not a lot on it, right? There's not. No. Yeah. Interesting. But it's enjoyable. You really just eat it for the seasonings and the, the texture. It's like the tip of the chicken wing where there's like really not a lot of meat on it and you're just kind of like, well, this is... I'm like, you can suck on it, you know, or something yeah. because it's got... Okay, cool. Yeah. Um. And for anybody who's wondering, you know, because like there, do you, do you, I'm curious about what you do. Do you cut the toenails off? I do. Do you? I do. Do you, Christine? I don't actually. I don't. I don't. I I just see it as extra collagen. So I'm like, eh, whatever. Yeah. So I I don't cut them, but I just pluck them with my hands off. Before you cook them or not? Before I cook them. Okay. Yeah. Because like when you process, yeah, no, you don't have to. Because people always ask, I see this a lot on those forums where people are like, do you have to peel chicken feet before you cook them? And if your chicken was processed properly, then when they're scalded, the outer skin comes off. And like there's like a almost an outer finger or toenail that pops off as well. Um, So what is the chicken foot you know is not what is actually touching the ground like what you're what you're cooking with is not actually touching the ground and sometimes when you're most of the chicken that you're buying or processing are the cornish cross breeds yeah so with that because they you know they 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 gain a lot of weight in the eight to ten weeks that they're processed and so a lot of times you'll see the sores on the bottoms of their feet because they are pretty much sedentary at eight weeks. Like they just get too big to move around. And so when I scald them, when we process our chickens, I scald them and then I just peel off that layer, that that yellow layer that you'll see. Yeah. Our Cornish crosses are really actually not sedentary, but that's good. I don't know what, I don't know what that is. Like ours, we've done two rounds of them and they are, they're perfectly fine at 10, eight or 10 weeks when we, when we process, they're not, they're big, but they're not like <laughs> unable to move. Yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, okay. So I wanted to ask you about grains and um, I know I've seen you talk about rice on your Instagram. Um, I'm curious if um, sourdough is something that happens in Asian cuisine or um, any special preparation of grains. Um and what that might look like in that traditional um, Asian food life. (laughs) (laughs) 
So we, we wash and soak our grains. So rice, for example, and we soak them, soak them for at least 30 minutes. And I talk about all of this in the cookbook. Um, to- with, with just water or with, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wash it. I soak them with water, wash it with water, soak it with water. Um, and it helps to improve the taste and the texture. Um, and this, I, you know, we, we, whenever we travel, we try to understand, you know, what the culture does. And we were talking to the, um, the manager of the rice factory out in Honolulu, Hawaii, and they do a Japanese natural farming. And I was just saying like, Hey, how do you, how do you prepare your rice? How do you guys do it differently? And she said the same thing. They soak their rice um, and it helps with the texture. It helps with the taste and um, it retains the moisture. So she said literally the next day you could, this is Japanese rice in particular, which I love Japanese rice. We eat a lot of the jasmine rice, but the Japanese rice is more chewy, um, more moist. She says, you know, literally the next day you can pull it out of the fridge and it won't be dry versus like jasmine rice will be dried. Mm. So this, the soaking for sure, it just um, um, breaks down kind of the, the enzymes. And then instead of sourdough, we typically don't, not traditionally. I think a lot of, uh, modern <laughs> um, Asian folks like myself are trying to do like sourdough dumpling wraps or in skins, right? But um, traditionally, fermentation is a popular method that was used in Asian cultures to transform the grains and legumes into various products. So for example, like soybeans are fermented to make products like soy sauce or miso or tempeh and um, rice can also be fermented. My grandfather used to make uh, rice wine, and you can also make sake um, in Japan with fermentation. Um, there's also sprouting. So you can sprout the grains and you they germinate, they grow tiny shoots. Um, so you see this with like mung beans and soybeans and other legumes. And it makes, it enhances the nutritional value of the grains and also makes it easier to digest. So when you're making things like dumplings or what, what would be a typical Vietnamese dish that would have a grain in it? Could you just maybe name one or two? Yeah, there's, so there's rice dishes like stir fry, but one of the popular ones that um, like I'll make when for like a healing soup is jiao or juk or it's like a rice porridge and we soak that, um, we dry it in the fridge, you know, and then we cook it in broth. Um, and it is so nourishing. We put a lot of ginger in it. You can put whatever meat, you can either have it fish or chicken, but if anybody in the family is ever feeling sick or it's just even a good overall meal to have at any point, whether it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner, you can add whatever it is, you know, that you have in the fridge and it's very nourishing. Okay. But something like a dumpling or a pot sticker, is that, are they using flour or are they using, is it rice flour? What is, what is the flour that is used? So dumplings, it's not so much. I think there's some, there's um, another type of flour, but it's not, not rice flour off the top of my head. I don't know what it is. Um, A lot of the, a lot of the Vietnamese recipes use rice flour. And the Japanese use um, a type of rice flour that turn it into mochi, which is the sticky oh, rice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, wait. But in Vietnamese cooking. Cream. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't you guys have spring rolls? 
Yes, we do have spring rolls and that's rice paper. So that's like, a, yeah, it's like a tapioca with um, rice. Okay. Yeah. So interesting. Uh, okay. I wanted to ask you about um, your husband. You said he is Chinese. Mm-hmm. And so are, is he also second generation um, immigrant or did he, long story short, did he um, grow up eating very traditional Chinese foods too? No. Okay. No, no not at all. No. So he's second generation um, and I'm first generation. So right. I was born here and for him, his dad was born here, born in Chicago, <laughs> went to Berkeley and um, Tim, he doesn't actually speak any Chinese or Mandarin, like no Mandarin. Oh, that's no, too bad. Too bad. I know. <laughs> Um, but he grew up, you know, he, he knows he can sing the rice aroni song. He <laughs> knows like lean cuisine. He's definitely, oh, no. it's oh. bad. And actually a lot of our arguments um, or disputes in our early years of our marriage were around food because he just, he, you know, is used to a lot of chips and soda and packaged foods and um, TV dinners is what he was used to. I didn't know because we, we dated long, like long distance. So it wasn't like, it didn't cross my mind to ask, (laughs) you know, like, what did you eat when you grew up? But these are questions that I'll be asking (laughs) moving forward. (laughs) Teach your daughters to Uh ask these questions. Yeah. I'll be running the credit report and asking questions. (laughs) Where are you eating? <laughs> no, but um, no, but it, it's you know it took a couple of years um, for us to really get on the same page about food. In particular, when we were so he's military and um, his last duty station was in Albuquerque, and there was this one restaurant there that served grass-fed, grass-finished um, steak, and you know, we were on a date night and I, and I said, yeah, let's, let's splurge. And so we ate that. Um, but oftentimes whenever, whenever we, you know, we'd be sleeping, I would wake up in the middle of the night thinking there was an earthquake because the bed would be shaking. And it was because he was scratching himself while he was sleeping. And I, that night that we had that grass fed, grass finished beef, he didn't scratch. And then I thought, could it be related to this grass fed grass finish? Cause everyone was telling us corn is what you want. Corn has that marbling. It, it adds, you know, more depth and flavor to your, to your steak. But I mean, he clearly had a reaction and it made me think, and it, I mean, it was something very clear for him, for him to go, Hey, maybe, maybe you might have something um, on this. So from there, I think he's been on the same page and now we have our, we raise our own <laughs> dairy cows and we have our own meat cattle. So yeah, we've, we've made a huge change since. Wow. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. That's fascinating, especially about the, the reaction that he was clearly getting from some of the food that he was eating. Yeah. Did, so do you think that now he sees the benefit of what you guys are doing and, you know, your cookbook and, and all of that? Do you feel like he's pretty much made the shift a hundred percent? Yeah. 
I think it was 2020. I mean, we, we had already been eating organic from when our oldest was born and we had already been cooking from scratch, but it didn't really, you know, it, it, it wasn't until 2020 when we were in California and all the grocery stores had shut down, like, you know, for a span of three days after the lockdown. And we didn't know when they were going to open back up again, that it made us realize, okay, we need to make some drastic changes. I do not want to figure out how to speed seven people off of, at that at that time, I had rushed to buy three egg-laying hens that I paid an exorbitant amount for. They were totally price gouging because of what was going on. But I said, we don't, we had a garden, but we didn't have any protein source. And, um, you know, we went to buy three egg laying hens for $300 each. Oh my Wait, gosh. Did you say each, each chicken, each, each, chicken. each. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it, was, it was insane. And I, we knew it at the time. So we drove through the Bay, Bay, um, the Bay bridge. And as we were driving, it was like nine o'clock at night. And I told him, I never from this point on ever want to worry about feeding our family off of three eggs a day. And it has now taken us three years. We have three dairy cows now, but we're feeding, you know, we're pretty much self-sufficient, even if we wanted to live off the milk itself, but that milk alone feeds all of our animals. And on top of that, we're feeding our community with the best possible products that we have to like you know we had to do it because we couldn't find anybody else that was farming the way that we do no corn no soy no antibiotics no anything you know um no spray so you know in a way we had to we had to buy those ridiculous egg laying hens we had to feel the pain to be where we are today yeah that was the catalyst Mm-hmm. for for the change that you your family needed you so you you've mentioned your farm a little bit and you mentioned also the Honolulu farm in Hawaii and you've touched on is Asian farming different or are there do you grow different foods than conventional farms I guess I'm, I'm assuming you do but which ones <laughs> yeah so uh, we do we do farm differently um I, you know, there's all sorts of different types. You have regenerative farmers, you have permaculture, you've got no-till, you've got lasagna, you've got back to Eden gardening methods, you have the square foot garden, you have all sorts of different types of gardening. Um, But we prescribe to, you know, know, the Asian cooking, Asian food, but Asian farming as well, where it's really low input. We try to use and reuse a lot of what we already grow on the land. Um, nothing really goes to waste at all. Even when we're processing our chickens, you know, we're, we're creating blood meal. Um, but you know, there's fermentation that happens with, there's a, there's Korean natural farming. There's, um, where you create your own amendments. Um, and Tim has really doubled down on creating our own bio amendments to amend our soil. You know, that's kind of why the whole sprinkle with soil tag came from, because it's not just sprinkling with salt, you know, at the end of a dish, but we're also sprinkling with soil because, you know, the gut biome and the soil microbiome is identical. 
And so how do we, if we want to have the most nutrient dense food, we have to have the best soil available to grow our food. And so, you know, there's fermentation, we create our own pesticide, natural pesticides. um, And it really, because if you can improve the health of the soil, you don't really have to use um, much anything else because you're going to be inviting all of the good, you know, um, pests to be coming in and uh, killing off the bad ones. So what kind of things are you growing that are maybe um, not common for Americans to see on their plates? Ah, we Lufa. have, yeah, we do have Lufa. Lufa. It is Yeah, I just, like, I just thought of that. You don't just eat now. it, right? We you don't eat, eat it. Yes, we do. Oh, you, you can eat Lufa? Really? Eat Lufa. I didn't know that. Yes, yes. It's so funny because... I'm like, why would you just grow it and dry it and like use it as, you know, in the shower? But you can eat it. I thought that was the only option. <laughs> Me too. I didn't know you could eat it. <laughs> yeah, you could eat it. There's um, there's Jai Bao, Jai Bi, which are two different names for squash. I don't exactly know what they directly translate into because they both look like squash, but they're cooked differently. You know, um, I... I will buy, if you've watched my Instagram, like I will go to like Virginia. There's this place because I went to school in DC, but there's the Eden Center in Virginia. There's like this Asian, there's always an Asian woman on the streets somewhere in a big city in an Asian center that's selling her, her Asian veggies starters. And so I always frequent them. Like I'm there, I'm buying like the chili peppers. I'm buying uh, Malabar spinach. I'm, it's become more mainstream now. Yeah, my mom grows it and I'm not a fan. Man, first of all, it just takes over. Second yeah. of all, I don't even know what to do with this thing. Oh, I love it. It's the best soup. It's slimy. So it kind of has the texture of like okra. You know, okra is slimy in your soup. I love okra. Yeah. So then you'll love Malabar spinach if you make a soup out of it with the with one of the Asian squashes. Like I have like four foot Asian squashes that are just hanging through their tunnel. And, you know, and it's so prolific. It just grows 15 to 20 feet like the vines. Oh, wow. You know, Um, it's just, you know, and obviously there's like the bok choy. The Napa cabbage is something I always grow for kimchi. Um, bok choy because I'll actually, if we don't have bean sprouts, I'll actually kind of saute it lightly and cook it in the pho broth. And it's kind of got that crunchy texture that the kids love. Oh. Yeah. Um, what else? Yeah. Lots of cabbages. Oh, chrysanthemum greens. My absolute favorite for hot pot. If you've had hot pot before, um, hot pot and spring rolls, I talk about in the book, in the cookbook, because you know, as a busy working mom, the sometimes the easiest thing to do is just cook at the table, like go serve yourself at the table. So spring rolls, right? It's just go out and grab the romaine lettuce, the carrots, the cucumbers that you can harvest from your garden. And then you have the rice paper, you can just cook the meat like at, at the center of the table. And then everybody just grabs and, and rolls their own spring roll. So that's how we do mostly in the summer. And then in the winter, we do a hot pot which if you've heard of like shabu shabu, maybe. Yes. Uh, yeah. I've had shabu shabu in Japan actually, but oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but hot pot's really popular because, you know, I can go out and grab those um, hearty Asian greens. So like chrysanthemum greens, 
um, bok choy, whatever is like prolific. And there's a pot, um, you know, one side is bone broth and the other side is like a miso soup for the kids. But I'll do like a spicy bone broth for like my parents and Tim and I, because we really love like in the wintertime, you really want it spicy. You want like your sinuses cleared up and super spicy. <laughs> these really special pots where it's sectioned off in the middle and the, the the kids can have their soup too cooked together. And most, you know, Asian cuisine we tend to eat family style. So we share a lot. It's very communal, but it's nice the hot pot because you just throw your meats and your veggies into the broth. You have some noodles or some rice, however you want to add, you know, your starches if, you know, if you want and you just eat from there. So it's, it's all the Asian veggies. It's, it's delicious. It's fun for the kids. That's how you sneak in the the veggies for husbands and children. <laughs> They're not eating it. It's just, ha- you know, make it interactive. Excellent. Yeah, because that that kind of goes right into we we wanted to ask you if you had any advice for parents who have kids that are not familiar with Asian cuisine or maybe not as adventurous. How how would you introduce these foods or how do you recommend any any advice for those parents? Yeah, I think you know, engage in cooking together, um, involve your children in the cooking process, you know, so let them assist. And like I said, like, you know, the spring roll dishes, the, the rice paper, let them start. If they just want to roll the rice paper and eat the rice paper, fine. And then when they see you adding, like, you know, I'll add like a piece of meat in the right, and then they'll eat the rice paper with the piece of meat. They just like the chewiness of the rice paper, you know, or, even rolling sushi or um, filling the dumplings, right? So the hands-on experience can make the food much more appealing for them. And my next advice would be to start with familiar ingredients. So introduce Asian dishes that your 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 child already enjoys. So if they like chicken, then try a mild chicken stir fry with some, you know, basic soy sauce or teriyaki chicken. Something with familiarity can make that transition easier. Um, make it a family event, right? So Asian meals, it is a family event. We eat together. Um, Like I said, you know, even though my parents worked a lot, we always had our dinners together. Um, And so just create that positive atmosphere to try new foods and it can become a bonding experience. All right, really quickly, because you just touched on it. um, And I, I just think that people are going to be angry with us if we close this out and don't talk about soy sauce. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I know we, we talked about it a tiny bit before we hit record. Um, what are your thoughts on soy in general? You know, like this is a really, is, is it, okay, maybe I should start with this. Is it actually a really heavily, heavily used ingredient in Asian cooking? Um, traditionally. And traditionally. Thank you. And, um, you know, how can we, if we're maybe avoiding soy, I mean, I, I, I think Christine and I definitely both avoid soy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I, I just would love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. So I'm the same way. We avoid soy, um, even not just in our cooking, but even with our animals, we don't feed them soy, um, nor corn, no soy. And the only soy, so not even tofu. Now, traditionally, soy is, or tofu is used in a lot of um, soy products. 
um, are used in a lot of Asian cooking. But for me, it have to be fermented properly. So there's like koji, right, that you can ferment and make uh, miso. So we do use miso, like I said. Um, but there's also soy sauce, for example. And the only soy sauce that we use are ones that are traditionally fermented in the traditional style. So, you know, over four years in a wooden barrel, right? And they're using mountain spring water. Um, that's the extent of it. And even then, because it's traditionally fermented, it's actually quite it's actually quite mild and not salty the way that you would expect like a Kikoman soy sauce would taste at the sushi restaurant. So a little bit goes a really long way. Um, but that that's the only soy sauce that we, that we use. What's the brand of it or where do you get it? I haven't, I have a link on my Amazon storefront. I don't know the brand cause it's in Japanese characters, but okay. I can send the link out or I can share that, that with you. Yeah, because we want to put that in the show notes for listeners. And I want to buy my own. Yeah. <laughs> it's pricey, but it goes a long way. Like a little bit goes a long way. So like that $40 bottle that I bought is we're only just, you know, a little bit into it. So you're not using this to like half a cup of it in, you know, something, right? Yeah. Like Because that's a normal amount for right. a whole family. Yeah. For, yeah. And for recipes, we'll call for, for that. Yeah. yeah. Or for ju maybe just you would use maybe half a cup if you're making like a marinade or something like that. But <clears throat> yeah. So you're not using it like that, right? I do, but I wouldn't use the brand that I just mentioned. I There's um, several other American brands that you can use that are also still traditionally um, fermented, like the, I think it's called Osawa is a good one. Um but it's more readily accessible versus the one that's imported from Japan. So the okay. one that's imported from Japan, I will use it as a drizzle sauce over, you know, rice or sticky rice to go a long way. But yeah, use that sparingly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and do you happen to know in traditionally, I mean, I have been to Japan and they were serving soy sauce when we would eat sushi. Is that a traditional practice to dip your sushi pieces in soy sauce? That I don't know. That's yeah. how I mean, I know I'm asking the wrong person, but I don't know if maybe you knew. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have an answer for that and I don't want to offend any other like. I know. It's that's totally useful. okay. No, don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> I know, that's what I said. Like this is a, we're, we're, we're talking about Asian food, but obviously you're not. Yeah. I mean, you're Asian, but you're not, you're just like, it's one country. Like <laughs> that's exactly why, like, I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't want to put tradition in there, like Asian traditions, because oh, even yeah. your family, even within the same Asian culture, like what my cousins do and what I do, like it's different mm. um, because of region too, like Northern Vietnam, Central Vietnam, Southern Vietnam, there's different traditions. In, within yeah, of the course. country, right? So um, that's why we had to mix traditions. Mm. Um, but it is well, our family's tradition, traditional yeah. recipe. Okay. Going back to soy sauce real quick, because we did touch on this before we hit record, and we wanted to make sure to cover it, is so because, especially in the health community, people are aware that the modern processed soy sauce is not the same thing as the traditional method. 
I feel like everyone has switched over to coconut aminos. And now coconut aminos are all the craze and everyone is using them because it's healthier and it's better for you and all of, you know, I don't know, all the buzzwords. What are your thoughts on coconut aminos? And yeah, share that with us. You know, it's it's a touchy subject because I've learned, you know, in the 40 years of working very closely with my mom and realizing that, you know, she really has that ancient wisdom, that traditional wisdom um, where she kind of knows intuitively, like, hey, this isn't, you know, I'd, I'd caution this and that and the other. But for coconut aminos, um, both my mom has said from, you know, when we first started using it, you know, during the paleo craze, she was saying, I just don't know about the way that it's processed. And so she always recommended for me over the years that I had been using it to not heat it um, because she says she just doesn't trust like what that reaction might be to whatever that process could have been. So she said, if you want to use it, use it as a sprinkling or as a, a, a topping um, over whatever dish without heating. And interestingly enough, I actually had some coconut aminos references in the Nourishing Asian Kitchen Cookbook. And as, you know, I had Sally Fallon Morell take a look at it, um, you know, Sally wrote the forward for it. So, you know, it's, it's a huge honor to have her endorsement and her support in such a way as she did review it. And I did ask her several ingredients, like even, even down to our sweetened condensed milk. I was actually really nervous about her response there, but she said, you know, there's, there's that, but um, in response to the coconut aminos, she almost said word for word, the same thing that my mom had been echoing for years, which is, I just don't trust the way that it's processed, even though, you know, I kind of pushed back and said, well, it's in the shopping guide. It's in the wise tradition shopping guide to source it. But ultimately, you know, I'm going to trust the woman who kind of knew traditionally, um, one, if they're questioning the process and we don't exactly know how it is, then maybe it's okay to avoid it or, I'm just going to go with what my mom has advised, which is over, you know, over the last years, just to use it as a, as a topping sauce. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a bummer because I, I definitely jumped on the, oh, well, okay. So I'm not going to use soy sauce. I can use coconut aminos for everything. <laughs> yeah. No, I was on that. I was on that boat too. Yeah. <laughs> And then realizing that there's the difference between, yeah, the modern processed soy sauce and the traditionally fermented soy sauce. Yeah. Okay. So we go back to the traditional and ancient wisdoms. It's pretty much mm-hmm. <laughs> almost always right. Mm-hmm. I mean, almost, you know, but yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's been a challenge for me because growing up, you know, my parents were immigrants and I was born and raised in America. So I always thought that, you know, I was more educated or, you know, the school system didn't say that. Like, that's not what the books say. That's Mm -hmm. not what, you know, we were taught in school. But now as I've gotten older and have my own children, I'm starting to realize that maybe mom had it right all along. Like, you know, I'll share a story. When I was little back then, 
they used to sell gummy bears in the bulk bins. I don't know if you remember that. And I used to love the red ones. I used to pick out the red ones. And my mom said, you can buy them. I'll buy them for you. But you have to pick out the clear ones. And I said, well, okay. So, I mean, that's how I got my gummy bears. But I always had to pick out the clear ones. And she always said, well, it's because, and this is mom without, you know, reading any, there was no Google back then. There was no research then, I'm sure. But she said she didn't trust the food coloring. She didn't think that it was real. And, you know, it's through these experiences and, and listening to her that I realized, okay, I mean, she knew that from when I was a kid and I would push back because I wanted the red ones <laughs> to now to cook aminos that I'm starting to realize maybe there's some truth to what mom thinks and I shouldn't just dismiss it right away. Maybe I should give it a second thought. Wow. I mean, if that is not an endorsement for listening to your mother's folks. <laughs> That's a hard pill though. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Hard to admit on, you know, public podcast. Right. Yeah, right. right. Um, you were right all along. Yeah, don't worry. I say that a lot on this show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to the day when my seven-year-old will one day tell me that. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's I pray for that now. day. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> okay well yeah tell us one more time when is the sh- when is the book coming out so um when where can people find you all of this you know whatever other things we feel like we need to say <laughs> <laughs> so the book is coming out december 7th and shipping december 8th 2023 um you can pre-order the book um on Amazon, which is where we're pushing all sales right now uh, through Amazon. So you can look up the Nourishing Asian Kitchen um, and you can find our family's journey, our story. I'll share recipes on our Instagram and it's at Sprinkle with Soil. We have our website, sprinklewithsoil.com. We have a YouTube at Sprinkle with Soil and we also have a newsletter off of Substack. And how do you use, do you just go to Substack and you like sign up for your? Yeah. Okay. I've never used Substack before. Yeah. So you'd go to sprinklewithsoil.substack.com and then you would subscribe and get access. Okay. Okay. Cool. Do you do a paid subscription? I don't do a paid subscription though. I've had several people just donate money to me, which is awesome. But then I haven't, I haven't like taken it because I feel bad. I'm like, Oh, I don't know. Like what you're, (laughs) it's just too much pressure. (laughs) I'm only on Substack for one person and I do pay for it. So I will. Oh, are you going to be at the conference this year? Yes, I'll be at the Wise Traditions Conference in Kansas City this year. I'll be running around. So if you catch me, um, I'll most likely be at the Chelsea Green Publishing booth. Um, I I think we won't have the book out then, but I'm sure we'll have some flyers. And you can, if anybody's going to be there, just stop by and say hi. Excellent. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any last thing that you want to say to our listeners or anything else? Yeah, I, I want to encourage you and I want to empower you that, you know, the Asian cuisine isn't 
it isn't hard. I mean, as a full-time working mom over the last, you know, decade, these are recipes that I've created with my mom to be nourishing, to be delicious and to be simple. And it's, you know, I don't want you to feel, you know, I've, I've heard it a lot where, you know, people are intimidated because they're not used to it. Um, and it's, it can be intimidating, but a lot of the recipes that, uh, a lot of the ingredients from the recipes are, I wanted to keep it so that you could, that you could easily access them from your local grocery store and um, without having to, to have access to an Asian grocery store. So, you know, it is very doable. You can do it even with a busy schedule, um, even with a farm, um, you know, we do it and, you know, our, our children are happy, they're healthy. My parents, you know, they're healthy. And so it's, it's totally doable. And I, and I encourage you to do it. And um, yeah, if there's any questions at all, I'm happy to just reach out and I'm happy to, to chat. Perfect. We're going to put all of these links in show notes so you guys can look for Sophia and make sure you order this book. It's coming out at the perfect time for Christmas. Obviously that was well-planned. Buy yourself uh, a gift. Oh, are you kidding me? I'm already thinking of like five people that I'm going to buy this book for. <laughs> and I'm sure, okay. Can we just encourage people to go pre-order it? Because I'm sure that helps you, right? Like that helps get yeah. traction or something. I have some pretty aggressive numbers for pre-order. So that's, I'm like, this off the cuff. I'm, you know, I'm sure we all feel the same way about Amazon, but unfortunately they own the market for this. Yeah, for and sure. So I all, if we can, yeah, I have aggressive goals for. Awesome. Um, well, let's, let's everybody go and help her meet her goals. I love it. <laughs> you know, as big as Amazon is, it does help the smaller people get their, their books out. So, cause I, I've said the same thing and Sally has mentioned that to me before. She said, don't knock Amazon. Amazon helps the little people get their books out into the world. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, and I, I heard somewhere that like, even if you go to a local bookstore, you know, you go in and you request at this, at your local bookstore that they, um, you know, order your book. They're just going to go on Amazon and order it. So <laughs> <laughs> is that right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but. I've heard I've heard that <laughs> probably true in today's world <laughs> Sophia this was so much fun and really cool to learn a little bit more about the Asian culture and Asian cooking and or specifically Vietnamese but um, I've actually heard Vietnam is absolutely gorgeous and totally a place worth visiting so yeah. I don't know maybe I'll get to see it one day <laughs> Well, thank you, Corey and Christine, for inviting me on the show. I'm so excited. I think your values are aligned with, you know, mine and what we're trying to do here. So I'm excited. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks to everybody for listening and hanging with us again and go order Sophia's book and come to the conference in October and all of those things. All right. That's it. Good night. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at nourishthelittles and online at nourishthelittles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at fornutrientsake and online at fornutrientsake.com. 
follow us on Instagram at Modern Ancestral Mamas. expressed in this episode are those of the guests. They do not reflect Corey and I's and Modern Ancestral Mama's personal views and opinions. We do not take responsibility for any ideas expressed during the podcast interview. The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.